Hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're starting a new book. It's called The Wind Calls the Tune, and it's by Stanley Smith and Charles Violet. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can not only support the podcast, but also get access to exclusive Patreon only book readings. Now on with the story. In 1949, the brothers Stanley and Colin Smith built the 20-foot boat Nova Espero and sailed her across the Atlantic from Nova Scotia to England, an achievement which stirred not only those who understand the sea, but the general public also. The Daily Press took an interest in the adventure and a tremendous welcome awaited the Smith brothers on their arrival. How easily might such innovation and such publicity have turned the heads of lesser men, but I know Stanley and Colin well, and I can assure you that it did not. So long a voyage in so tiny a boat, one of the smallest ever to have made an ocean crossing, would have satisfied most people's desire for adventure. But in 1951, Stanley Smith sailed again, this time with his friend Charles Violet, and once more crossed the Atlantic in Nova Espero, carrying samples of British goods from the Festival of Britain to New York. This was an even more arduous voyage than the previous one, for not only was the distance greater, but, whereas on the west to east crossing one can expect a large proportion of fair winds, the voyager sailing in the opposite direction is likely to be beset with headwinds for much of the way, unless he follows the trade wind route, which adds considerably to the distance and therefore to the difficulty of carrying sufficient food in a small vessel. Nova Espero did meet bad weather, and owing to damage to her rudder, which almost disabled her, she had to put into the Azores for repairs. Eventually, she made a landfall in Nova Scotia, whence she coasted to New York. The Wind Calls the Tune is an account of this second great voyage, and is that rarity, a perfect collaboration. As a sailing man, I read it with intense interest, for it contains a deal of most valuable advice and information for those who sail the seas in small craft. Simply and charmingly written, and without a suggestion of heroics, it tells the story so vividly that I could almost believe myself to be at sea with the authors, experiencing with them the joy of a fair wind and swift progress, the apprehension at the onset of a gale, when the long ocean swell builds up hour by hour into a great angry sea, and the moan of the wind in the rigging rises to a shrill scream, the stark fear of a lee shore towards which the little vessel is being driven helplessly, but, above all, I appreciated the patience and the good humour in adverse circumstances of the two young men who set out on this daring enterprise purely for the satisfaction of its accomplishment and a love of adventure. In my small floating home, and I feel sure in that of every other cruiser up and down the coast and on shore, this book will share an honoured place on the shelf alongside Slocum, O'Brien, Robinson and Scott. Eric C. Hiscock, Yacht, Wanderer 3, Yarmouth, Isle of Wight. Chapter 1. Fitting Out by Stanley Smith Our story starts one dreary autumn day, the culmination of a long spell of gradually deteriorating weather, a warning of the approach of winter. The wind whistled dismally through the roofs of the miles of grey dock buildings of Liverpool. Rain pelted unmercifully out of a heavy grey sky and beat to pulp the remnants of a thousand discarded newspapers in the bombed lots. Yet this day marked the beginning of a new adventure. There was excitement in the dank air, 
and if the surroundings were drab, there was colour in our minds. Charles Violet, who was writing this book with me, had just arrived from Nova Scotia, bringing with him the Nova Espero, which had made the journey as deck cargo on the freighter's deck. As soon as we met, I immediately broached the subject on my mind, a second crossing of the Atlantic in the Nova. Without a moment's hesitation, he agreed, and thus was started the greatest adventure of our lives. The Nova Espero was designed as a half-decked sailing boat, measuring 20 feet in overall length, 15 feet 11 inches on the waterline, with a tonnage of rather less than one. She was the realisation of years of wartime dreaming on the part of my brother Colin and myself. It was a dream that came true, for we built the boat ourselves in 1949 and sailed her across the Atlantic from Dartmouth, Nova Scotia to Dartmouth, England. On completion of the voyage, the Nova was shipped back to Nova Scotia, and from there Charles Violet attempted the passage of the Atlantic single-handed, but owing to an accident with a paraffin stove 500 miles out from land, resulting in severe burns, he was obliged to give up and return to Nova Scotia. The Nova Espero was then shipped to Liverpool during the winter. The new voyage which we planned on her arrival under such dismal conditions had a different purpose from the first Atlantic crossing. From this occasion, we hoped to draw attention to some of Britain's exports to the USA. The idea was to carry samples of exports straight from the Festival of Britain to New York, the Nova Espero being the smallest boat of this century to attempt the direct east-to-west crossing of the Atlantic against prevailing wind and current, and would, we thought, assist the export drive by the very novelty of the method. It sounds a sentimental idea now as we put it on paper, but actually the hard-headed experts of the Festival Council gave it their support. Much to our delight, they thoroughly entered into the spirit of the idea, feeling that the symbolism of the risky passage in the little ship was in keeping with the festival year, and they helped us immensely. We arranged for the Nova Espero to be put on rail at Liverpool for Yarmouth, Isle of Wight, where my father has a boatyard, for we realised that it would be impossible to make the voyage without extensive alterations to the boat. The first trip from west to east had not been easy, in spite of the records of prevailing weather, which indicated a high percentage of favourable winds to carry a boat across, many hard easterly blows had been encountered. But on the reverse passage from east to west, it was certain we would have to beat into headwinds most of the way, unless we made a long detour to the south to get the fair winds and easier conditions experienced in the trades. The distance we should have to sail would be much greater, and, as the crossing was bound to take longer, it was clear that we would have to improve the accommodation below decks. On the previous passage, Nova Espero had been half-decked, and a makeshift cabin top improvised by means of the dinghy upturned over part of the open cockpit. The man off watch slept in a sleeping bag under the dinghy. This time, we needed a real cabin, otherwise we should bear the risk of being unable to stand the prolonged discomfort and exposure. A further modification was an alteration to the rig. The Nova Espero had the single mast of the sloop rig on the first voyage, and although she proved equal to the job, it was found that she would not lie comfortably head to seas when at sea anchor, nor would she safely lie stern to the seas, for if the sea anchor was streamed aft, heavy breakers broke over and into the cabin via the cockpit. Also, as a sloop, she could not be left to sail herself for long periods at a time, Charles had experimented with the addition of a small mizzen mast and mizzen, and found that the boat, thus yawl-rigged, 
answered all requirements. She would wear the cock, head to seas, and under mizzen and foresail, she would sail well without anybody at the tiller. So clearly, a mizzen was needed for the new voyage. Some anxious winter months passed before we were at last free to start the actual work of the alterations. A careful survey of the timber situation at the main timber yard in the island showed us that plenty of prime quality mahogany and American elm was available for the cabin sides, the cabin frame, and the continuation for the hull timbers upwards to make the new cabin form part of the boat. Another firm, manufacturing the very latest results of many years of research in waterproof bonded plywood, assured us that they could supply large sheets, three-eighths of an inch thick, to form the new cabin deck. The first few days were really spent in looking at the boat rather than working on her, for first we had to make up our minds about the precise way in which the alterations should be carried out, and the time which each phase of the operations would take to complete. Time was important, as the festival authorities had notified us that they were working out a plan for an official send-off from the South Bank site at a precise hour on the evening of 11th May, and it was already late March. Thus, as their schedule was based on the assumption that we would be ready, we simply had to get cracking. With a peculiar sense of guilt, as if committing an act of desecration, we removed the dinghy, which had become almost a permanent feature of the boat, so long had it been there. We unscrewed the cockpit combings, then forced ourselves to bore holes in the deck. We ripped up the canvas deck covering, and most irrevocable act of all, sawed a great slit right across the wide clear foredeck. We paused to stare at the results of this first dire deed in horror, and then, like Western martyrs George of the South Seaman, when he first used the ads, we turned desperately to hacking and rending in a fit of frenzy. We stood back an hour after to gaze upon a murdered Nova. She was opened up so that looking down on her, a tiny triangle of foredeck and the small original aft deck was all that was left to remind us that she had but a short hour ago been a complete and beautiful little sailing boat. Her hull was exposed so that the pathetic little ribs gleamed in the sun like the remains of some once lovely animal. Our next job was to take off the keel and to collect manpower to manoeuvre the boat into the shed. We cleared away round the yard and awaited the day's quota of onlookers. Sure enough, in ones and twos they arrived and by careful concealment of our purpose with amiable chatter, we lulled the increasing collection of beef into a sense of security. When our covert appraisal of the accumulated brawn satisfied us, we archly broached the subject on our minds. And thus, by voluntary labour, in a scene reminiscent of the great juggernaut procession, the remains of Nova Espero were prized and hauled under the cover of the workshop roof. As the weeks went by, the little ship began to show signs of recovery. A new bulkhead had been built just forward of where the cockpit was to be. An uneven row of American elm timbers jutted up from the sides of the boat throughout her midship sections. Inside, an arrangement of struts and longitudinals indicated the layout of bunks and lockers. I will not trouble the reader here with a full description of all the alterations which we made, as particulars of these and of the Nova Aspro are given in Appendix 2 of this book. Our great friend during this feverish period was Skipper, a retired naval commander who was giving us temporary home aboard his self-converted ex-naval pinnace. Skipper may be very old in years, but underneath a severe, gruff exterior, he is as young and energetic in outlook as we are. 
Phlegmatic as a rhinoceros and as obstinate as a leak in a skylight, he is never cantankerous. He worked as we did until long after midnight nearly every night for weeks on end, and he spun yarns by the fathom with the true sailor's twist at the end to keep us cheerful when we were unhappy. One of our favourites is the following. I had a bunch of young city lads on board. We were on our way across the channel when we came across a line of lobster pot floats. They asked me, what are those things, skipper? I told them, but they would not believe me and roared with laughter. So I went about and picked one up. We found two beautiful lobsters inside and I thought I'd prove my point, but they giggled like fools and yelled, those ain't lobsters, lobsters are red. I was getting a little weary by this time, but I took the lobsters below and dropped them into a pan of boiling water. When they were finally cooked to the colour of the sunset, the lads were satisfied. I told them to take the lobsters up and put them back in the pots. We dropped them overboard and left them where we found them. On one occasion, we broke a few items of crockery when we were helping him wash up once a week. Instead of annoyance, he consoled us with a yarn about an old trawler skipper who bellowed in fury. Damn the boy, now he's smashed all the saucers and we'll have to drink out of cups. As the weeks flew by, the shape of things to come became pleasantly clearer. We wasted many hours gazing with undisguised admiration at the new outline of the boat, and we can hardly be blamed, for this is the reward granted to men who build boats according to their own ideas. No man on earth ever gets nearer to heaven than the enthusiastic boat builder. He experiences feelings of pride in his own creative ability and happy anticipation of pleasurable days of sailing to come. Meanwhile, my father undertook alterations to the keel. This involved some very arduous labour, as we had decided to cut off 100 pounds of the iron keel at the after end to compensate for the additional weight the boat would soon be carrying. He also gave us much valuable advice and many useful suggestions drawn from his lifelong experience of boats and boat building. While these alterations were in progress, suitable sails were being cut by the best known sailmaker in the world. He gave much helpful advice and many practical ideas were developed to make them strong enough for the punishment they were likely to receive. When the sails arrived, they were a sheer delight. Close examination revealed a masterpiece of needlework, ropework and wiring, and when hoisted, they swelled out into a near-perfect set. They had been sent to Tamworth for colouring, anti-mildew treatment and waterproofing. We found that this processing was a tremendous asset. The colouring toned down to a very lovely shade after a little exposure, and when we arrived at our destination, there was no trace of mildew. The waterproofing also proved a greater advantage than might at first appear, for heavy, soggy sails can be difficult to handle in some circumstances. As the date set for our departure advanced with sickening rapidity, we were set about putting in fittings, varnishing and painting. A growing anxiety about the possibility of being unable to sail on the appointed day began to oppress us, for we had only six weeks left and so much to do and so many as yet unforeseen snags to straighten out. We decided to step up production. From then until the boat was afloat again, we worked an average of 15 hours every day, including weekends. Now we were very annoyed about this, for we had hoped to have leisure to condition ourselves for the months of discomfort ahead. Many more items had to be dealt with besides the fitting out. We had no room to carry a dinghy now that the cabin had been added to the Nova, but we decided 
The take with is a small collapsible rubber dinghy with little paddles which can be attached to the hand. We also had a cockpit cover made, though it was only once used during the voyage. But it was the stowage of food and water for so long a voyage that presented special difficulties in so small a boat. Apart from lack of space, it was almost impossible to carry the weight of water required for so long a period. We decided to try an experiment here and place our whole faith in converting seawater to fresh, which would get over the weight and stowage problem. Here the Permutit company gave us generous cooperation. They provided us with the emergency seawater converters, which consisted of rubber bags with filters and cubes of special chemicals. By this means, four and a half pints of fresh water from each bag can be obtained from the sea. The system was the result of long experiment and thorough testing, but it needed a lot of confidence to set off, knowing that if it failed, we should be left in mid-ocean, like the ancient mariner, with water, water everywhere but not a drop to drink. We will explain later how we use the seawater apparatus and how it never let us down. For provisions, stowage was again the problem, coupled with limited cooking facilities and time in which to cook. Instead of taking bread, which only lasts about 10 days, or ship's biscuits, we took Rovita. Stowed forward of the watertight bulkheads, this cracker's great area and light weight could be regarded as providing buoyancy. For the rest, we depended principally on food in tins or jars. In this field, our friends at the Board of Trade rendered valuable assistance. Numerous items of essential equipment and provisions would have been difficult for us to find without assistance, and, indeed, to pay for, as by this time our capital had dwindled almost to nothing. Our particular friend, Mr Thorsby, and his colleagues made every effort to supply our requirements and through the kindness of a number of manufacturers whose products we hoped would be brought to the notice of the American public when we arrived, we obtained most of the equipment and stores we most badly needed. We were only too pleased to carry the samples and we felt we were not wrong in gratefully accepting this help, as the purpose of the voyage had become without doubt a promising feature of the Festival of Britain. In the meantime, it had been arranged that the boat, together with the representative goods she carried, would be displayed in New York's biggest stores. The idea that our venture might be of some service to Great Britain provided an inspiring incentive. Eventually, the day came when the Nova Espero was lifted into the water for the last stage of fitting out. We were very happy about her appearance afloat with a new cabin. To some people, her freeboard seemed insufficient. She certainly did look very low, having only some nine inches of freeboard amidships. This impression was enhanced by the two rubbing strips, one above the other, with the green top strakes between them, which gave an illusion of reduced height. But in fact, the sides of the new cabin forming a continuation of the hull upwards in effect added to the freeboard. We were disappointed that we were denied the opportunity of sailing her and giving her any trials. That time was short and there seemed an endless number of little details to be cleared up. It was during the final stages of fitting out that we received practical help from Charles's mother who, although not used to boats, helped us in many ways, even to carrying out such chores as cleaning shavings and sawdust out of the bilges. This must have been a supreme test for her, and we felt unhappy twinges of conscience on her account. She did not once try to dissuade us from our purpose, yet she must have suffered agonies of doubt and fear for our safety. The day at last came, when the Nova Espero was lifted onto a lorry on the quay at Yarmouth 
and was taken to London. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.